the Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. And the background to this podcast is that I recently had the sort of fortune slash misfortune to read the Phil Collins autobiography. And then within short succession, I also read Johnny Marsh and the Smiths autobiography called um, Set the Boy Free, which was odd because I never quite resolved why it was called Set the Boy Free. It was obviously a reference to a song I I didn't know. So having read these two, I thought, well, the geography stuff is always present in these books. There's, they always talk about where they came up from and what, who they met and the landscape and stuff like that. Then they talk about how they made it mm-hmm. and where. And then later on, because both of these people became successful, they talk about the touring experience and so on. So I thought it could be good to get people that have more actually study mm-hmm. music, music geography yeah. and musicians' lives to talk about either a few other examples of this genre or just general trivia and Sarah told me that you were at the Urban History Planning History Conference and that your research is about music as well, music subculture. So that's the background to it. And what I thought I'd get is just general thoughts. I can see Sarah's got a list. I've of got a list. Maybe we should hear first about what Sam's PhD topic is. My PhD is on small live music venues, looking at how they work as social hubs for music scenes and also places where emerging acts kind of get their first break. Uh, it sort of looks at the spatial kind of aspects of live music venues, but mainly is hinged on ideas of converting cultural capital, like the cultural capital of the space, and um, the booking agent and the bartenders and the staff, converting that cultural capital into social capital by way of the social connections and mainly economic capital finally in like getting money over the bar. And yeah. you're looking at, at venues now or you've got a historical viewpoint as well? Um, both but mainly ethnography of the two venues, the old bar and the tote in Melbourne's in the north. Um, so specifically looking at those as case studies, trying to get a sense of how small live music venues work to kind of facilitate the grassroots of music scene. And maybe, Sarah, you should give a bit of a spiel on your PhD. And have you interviewed musicians for yours? Yeah. Yeah, okay, that's cool, because that's very fun, I have to say, interviewing musicians. For my PhD, I looked at the historical geography of live music in Sydney and Melbourne. So looking back in time through the 80s and 90s up to the mid-2000s when, um, on the one hand, that's pretty much the end. Well, not the end, but... Uh, a transition period from purely print me- media into, although surprisingly the street press is still actually quite robust, but that aside, that's if you look at that time period from the early 80s to the mid-2000s, that's when a lot changed for Australian live music and what I would consider the norms of how venues work and probably what Sam's encountering now 
became normal because they certainly yeah. weren't always like that. So it's a transition period in which Sydney seemed to fare a lot worse. And yes, it did, but the outputs of the PhD were to look at what we mean by, you know, it got worse. What do we mean by decline? And it was hugely spatial. Yes, things declined, but that didn't mean that there were fewer gigs or fewer venues or anything like that. It was just that they were sort of squashed into a smaller area and you had some venues where a lot of stuff happened, like the old bar or a punters club, which was around for a while, Esplanade, all those sorry. sorts of places. Thank you. <laughs> no worries. A disproportionate number of gigs are happening at certain places, and in Sydney it was a little bit more scattered. And what you would see through that period is a lot of musicians who may have in the 80s moved to Sydney, just sk- hopping, hop skipping past that, um, especially as things got harder in the 90s, and hopping on to Melbourne and, then, and I was able to at least have a vague excuse during my PhD and in the years since to read musician biographies. They're very entertaining, sometimes they're just stupid and sometimes they go on about drug use and stuff like that. But also in the PhD I got to interview musicians, not like always famous musicians, like the whole spectrum of them, about how they got started doing gigs and what their experiences were with live music. venues and the people and the agents yeah. that people get started on in the music industry. You've got to go to a venue. I remember in the mm-hmm. Phil Collins book mm-hmm. he said well weirdly he grew up in London and was in the performing arts or something. He went to a performing arts school that his mum ran. Yeah. Very <laughs> and, well um, connected. <laughs> his big break was as the Artful Dodger in a, a you know a well, I don't know if it was on the West End, but well, I think it was proper West End production of Oliver Exclamation Mark. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so he always had that slightly not quite rock and roll thing happening, but I think it served him well later. Yeah. But he started gigging a lot. He joined other bands, helped that he could play the drums, doing lots of gigs. In all the musician biographies I've read, um, the only ones who really didn't get started at a venue were like very, very well-off backgrounds who maybe, got, you know, got placed on uh, a soap show and then moved into something else. You know, that's a slight... There's a, there's a subgenre of pop stars, which I've, like, Delta Goodrum, Olivia Newton-John um, and Kylie. They're very good at what they do, but they don't... That's not the entry point for them. They have to come in another way, but everybody else... You have to start gigging, so they know musicians know where to go. So Sam, in your your venues are the Tote and the Old Bar, and you do you speak to people that really they move to Melbourne or they come to this area or they seek these venues out because they have entry level. Gigs? Yeah, yeah. Uh, what I've found interesting is that a lot of the people that are involved in those venues, staff, musicians, and otherwise, aren't actually from Melbourne. That's so true. Yeah. That's so Where true. Where are they from? Regional yeah. Victoria, Regional. Tassie, Fuck yeah. Perth, Sorry, I swore. Brisbane, yeah. uh, some Sydney siders who mm-hmm. were sick of the scene there, um, and they all kind of come together because they, they hear, you know, the the, the myth of rock authenticity that surrounds the toe, for example, <laughs> and like how it's the home of rock. And you've yeah. got to play at the Toad if you want to make it. What well, um, if you don't want to make it? You just got to play there anyway. Or does yeah. everyone want to make it? That's a, that's another. Well, I think if you're like if you're inclined to sort of ascribe to this narrative, like authentic rock 
is a, or like just live the live music scene in Australia in general. Like the Toad is somewhere that you have to play at least once. You think that's based on the, I guess, biographies of particular artists, or is it? It's the, the place sustains its own mythology. Regardless. I think. I think it sustains its own mythology. It definitely like perpetuates its own mythology with like mm-hmm. documentary mm-hmm. films mm-hmm. and like the whole slam rally and it being closed for uh, during like, you know, the late. 2000s and mm-hmm. then reopening yep. great fanfare um, basically um, it means that it's been kind of like it's got this place in Australian rock history that's fairly set but also it's interesting having spoken to the management there they're really aware of it becoming a museum um, <laughs> and they don't want that like they want to like Keep the tote what makes it the tote. Keep that kind of narrative of rocking for 30 years sort of thing. But Rich Stanley, the current book, has done a really good job of like pushing forward in terms of the genres that are represented there and also like the, the people. It's very open genre-wise. Genre it's not mm-hmm. pure rockism. I was there on Sunday night, like on a whim, and there was some like electro... Um, pop duo playing just in the main band room like like opening for a bunch of other bands and it was like very non-tote music but like on that stage with quite a few people in the room mm-hmm. um, and I think they're quite open to to new forms of music as long as it aligns with that kind of underground mm-hmm. that makes the tote like that sort of sticky carpet you know Melbourne rock institution that it is. What about, how does that contrast to the old bar that has less, I would say, less of a um, well-known, um, locals love it, but it's not yeah. famous, right? Not like people is it famous in the state? I think it's famous amongst musicians that tour to Melbourne in the state. It's mm-hmm. definitely got its own thing going on. But just because it's smaller, like, bands, you don't play there unless you kind of, like, are a smaller band, or you're playing your first shows in Melbourne sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But like Camp Cope, who are quite big now, um, and you know, they're about to play like that headline show at Sydney Opera House. I remember that they would play the old bar maybe like once every two weeks in the first six months of their existence, like on a Tuesday night. Yep. And like, that was where they kind of gained the following. And practiced the sense, yeah. And yeah, and sort of like got their chops up to record their first album. And then like, because Sarah Thompson, their manager, is so devoted to the space and such a close friend of the owners, manager and drummer, mind you. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, they've given back and they've played like surprise secret Sunday afternoon shows that have sold out in minutes. So mm-hmm. like, I think it's a matter of size and also a matter of time. Like mm-hmm. they just haven't been around long enough. Mm-hmm. How um, old is the old bar? Ten years since the current owners have been running it, yeah. and that was like I think it's probably before that it was a live music venue, but it didn't have a really solid identity. Mm-hmm. So it's only in the last ten years that it's like kind of built a reputation, mm-hmm. and like the ten year anniversary was celebrated with a whole week of secret shows that were announced last minute. With lots of big bands like Gold Class, The Peep Tempels. Graveyard Train, Cash Savage and the Last Dreams, all of so those think, bands coming back to headline shows there to celebrate 
where they started and now, and you know, there was a big line up in the Included, they just didn't do pubs. They didn't go to pubs. Mm -hmm. They didn't play at pubs. They yep. were not that kind of band. Yeah. They played at clubs. A club, which the mm -hmm. most uh, pivotal one Hacienda. for them is the Hacienda. Yeah, yeah. And then that seems to be featured in 24-hour party people to have been mm -hmm. defined a particular place and time. Mm -hmm. And it was tied. I wouldn't say their genre was necessarily narrowly defined, but mm -hmm. it, certainly to outsiders. Um, yeah, they just. I don't, is it still going? I don't know. Uh, it might be a museum it piece a museum now. I think it's there, but not Manchester. there. The, the Hacienda. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, no, it hasn't been going for yeah. decades. So they so really just did. They did know. the 80s, 90s stop, and that was. And, and it was famous. And, and then I assume people still do live music in Manchester, but like not there. And. To actually be a music venue and keep going for decades is a rarity. Yeah, I think that's why Big that rarity. is yeah. so, um, like, celebrated. Yeah. Um, in Sydney, we didn't really have those venues that lasted a long time. We didn't have as much of that sort of social capital, I guess you'd say, for the venues. And there are some venues that technically have gone for a long time in Sydney, but they have periods where they weren't really doing music and then they do the classic Sydney thing where they were kind of still doing music but they put the pokies in downstairs and then they put the band room upstairs and so it was kind of the same venue but not really yeah. and um, you would have this noticeable uh, difference in Sydney compared to Melbourne where it's pretty easy to erode that kind of um, pleasant feeling towards a venue. If you do odd things like having big cover charges and yeah. having the pokies and stuff like that then um, if the venue you know runs into trouble then the reaction tends to be well you know I can't say fuck him <laughs> okay. no you, can you swear on the yeah, podcast yeah. okay yeah and in Sydney there was much more certainly from the late 1990s onwards if venues had troubles with anything that was kind of like yeah whatever well, I never the liked them anyway the yeah, that, yeah yeah that's right um, and there was a bit more of a push towards um, you know I'm doing the bunny quotes underground sort of informal event like you know DIY venues which is fun if it's a party that you're invited to but a very noticeable thing of that is that it's it doesn't have that longevity because it takes huge amounts of personal energy to run your own parties and to to make that thing sort of thing happen off the radar and like in Melbourne it's a little bit more above ground and if you're relying on people going, yeah, yeah, let's run our own thing and we'll be ace and we'll just do it ourselves, I have yet to meet anyone who can continue doing that. They'll get yeah, tired, they'll get burnt out, and then the whole thing has to start again. So yeah. it has positives and negatives. But yeah, the negative of things being long running is you can get that museum feeling. And the people, you spoke to the managers and, and I guess uh, the businesses themselves, do they do it for the money? Is it? Is it no. Yeah. Or do they lose money on these ventures? Well, they don't lose money. Um, otherwise, they wouldn't be open. Um, I, I guess they. 
I agree with your general assessment, but I guess a, a theory could be if you're from really, really rich parents, you could do it just as a sort of hobby. You could do it as a hobby? They're uh, not that sort of. I think the, um, the original owner of the old bar apparently was sort of like that. Mm -hmm. um, but he didn't last that long. Yeah. Um, and then I, I can't speak for the current owners of the Tote, but I, they have other venues though, yep. which kind of prop up the Tote, I guess. Yeah, part um, of an ecosystem, yeah. Yeah, mm. whereas the, I think the owners of the old bar, they sort of like do their best to live how they can, um, running a small, I can't speak to the specific finances. Mm. I know they wouldn't earn a lot, they're definitely not rolling in it at all. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they're earning enough to live on. Yeah. So those sort of themes there, um, migration is just huge in music stories. Yeah. Um, migrating for particular, and then migration sort of self-sustaining something. So then it, in the end it doesn't matter if, if Melbourne's better for music, if eventually that's what everyone hears, yeah. then they all come here anyway. anyway yeah. um, there was a period in that's the mid-80s where it was actually a bit better to go to Sydney, but apart from that now it's, you know, and local you know, community radio is a big part of it as well. But yeah, it's, it's mythologized. I, I really couldn't even count the amount of musicians I've met in Melbourne who said they moved here from regional Victoria, Western Australia, Adelaide, yeah. Queensland. And yes, you have your um, I'm Sick of It Sydney people. One of my favorite interviews was one he, he said he came back down to Melbourne after having been gigging in Sydney. And then, you know, he did a gig and, and you know, got some money and got a rider, like meaning he got a beer. And he was really, really happy. <laughs> he was like, what is this place? This is so amazing. We're mostly doing this interview off the cuff. I had prep time of like 30 minutes, but uh, it should be said that both Sam and myself, we have had prep time of many years thinking about this and talking to people about this sort of thing but it could look at this point like I am doing a very bad assignment when I went Liz said uh, the musician biography books and this has become like a hobby of mine I had a vague excuse to read musician biographies and now I just do it because it's like quite entertaining so I quickly wrote down ones that I had read quite recently Tomorrow Never Knows about silver chairs. Did they oh, write really? it themselves yeah. or is it? Nah, written by someone else, but that sounded like they had pretty good insider contacts. Mm -hmm. um, that sounds good. I'd like to read it. Yeah, I recommend. I recommend. Uh, I learned a lot about Can you for each title because we probably won't come back to it. Just give like a three word summary. Okay. <laughs> three word summary. Uh, summary. So about silver chair. So um, they were absolutely huge in the 1990s. They're, uh, they're a great band. They wrote great songs, but they're also um, just entirely um, of their time they were um, sort of picked up they literally won a competition called Pick Me in the yeah. mid-1990s which was run by SBS and Triple J they were that's enough I okay like they three words so yeah okay yeah. They, were, yeah. they were child stars as well and they're from Newcastle, Newcastle and they still live in Newcastle I know that and that's a really amazing feature Daniel yeah. Johns and all of them is they still live in Newcastle yeah. so yeah and they it really intimate relationship with Triple J and I don't think they could have still lived in Newcastle if they didn't have Triple J. I so agree. I would, and that same of Grafton and what's that band with that, you know, that guy, Chemical Heart or whatever it is. 
Brisbane. Brisbane. They're from Lismore. Oh, Lismore, sorry. Random town in New South Wales. They were able to be from these towns and have a huge audience. Powderfinger as well. Yeah. Where from? are they from? Brisbane. 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 Triple Brisbane. J, Triple J. Oh, like this, yeah. this was a huge they're part royalty. of being able to stay there. Regurgitator famously stayed in, in Brisbane. Brisbane. Yeah. yeah, and they didn't have to leave because they had Triple J. Uh, and then we have working class boy. Jimmy Barnes. Yeah, it's excellent. That's actually the first of two uh, books about his life, Jimmy Barnes, followed by Working Class Man, which I haven't got around to reading it. Not because I didn't like Working Class Boy, but because Working Class Boy, about his leading up to joining Cold Chisel, was so good that I don't want the next one to be shit and for me to be disappointed. But yeah, he was very working class. He's a migrant. He's one of many migrants who ended up in the north of Adelaide. Um, And then the other notable features I got from that book is that Cold Chisel were part working class, Jimmy Barnes, and part really quite middle class. Which yeah. is also true of yeah. Genesis. Yes, absolutely. So there's Sorry to the, Phil yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then we have Hunger Makes Me a Modern Girl by Carrie Brownstein of um, Sleater Kinney. I've read the first chapter. I loved it, except the, the bit time. where she got rid of her cat. But anyway. There's a lot of rock biographies where I've read the first chapter, mm-hmm. and I've realised that musicians are like fundamentally boring people <laughs> and I stop reading. So yeah. why do you keep reading Sarah? They are often quite yes true. It doesn't mean they're interesting people. I guess I'm motivated by I love reading it and then as the course of the life unfolds uh, well A I love hearing about how they wrote the songs but that's only ever a small part of the books but B is over and over reaffirming what I had figured out or like you know learnt in my thesis is all the things those themes that are always there migration and how you make it and how often there's a common theme that like there's some kind of funder like a Svengali figure or something like that and a really key thing that you can do it yourself but no one and I mean no one really does it themselves they might do it with other people on a budget but to get that push to get that like things are happening and that you know you're not just slogging away doing nothing. So what was Sleater Kinney who did it for They've worked together. They were a unit. Her and the other lady in Sleater Kinney, mm-hmm. they, they became a sort of cohesive unit and then they really tapped into the network of the Pacific Northwest indie music labels. They were around when, you know, you could still send, sell CDs and stuff like that. So they could actually make something of a living in that independent music scene late 1990s. They were absolutely part of those record labels that were operating there. So they were on recording contracts even though they didn't earn a lot of money. They actually tapped into the Australian scene. Weirdly, their first album was recorded in Australia and yeah. they were trading on social capital by staying with people in those bands. Like and, I saw the women yeah. here had Yes, Evan Dandy absolutely. here a few weeks ago. Yep. And he had this whole Australian yep. connection. You, you do it with other people. So that worked Next. really well for them. Not dead yet, Phil Collins. I could go on about this for <laughs> ages. Um, he writes amazing songs. I think it's partly influenced by having worked in theatre, you know, like musical theatre, um, which always worked like, you know, the Beatles that work for them, having that little slight naff thing happening yeah. that tends to work well. He does sound kind of... Uh, maybe a bit annoying <laughs> not not a really awful person or anything like that but you know I don't think any human being could possibly not be a little bit full themselves if you, they made that much money was, he, yeah. he cited it himself yeah. in, in one of the reviews yeah. of his later albums in yeah. the 80s the review said surely even Phil Collins is sick of Phil Collins right now <laughs> he was really Saturated famous and days. really really successful so I, I enjoyed learning about his how he did his recordings 
he's from London. He kept going on about that, um, but he tapped into that scene in you know swinging sixties. Yeah, he of, said he was a teenager. They just toured constantly, stand, stand yeah. around waiting yes. for something to happen. There was always stuff happening, always gigs on, and you could just play in all these places around the UK. You know, they had that famous road, or what do they call them in in the UK? Not they don't call them servos. A big, a famous like gas station just before you got back into London because they would do it because of course the UK is not that big. You could do a tour on the weekend, then come back, and there was like a gas station just before the outer limits of London where all these bands would end up in the wee hours of the morning. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I'll look that up later. He mentions it in there. I've had read text by Tex Perkins. Wow. He's from Queensland. Uh, yep, and he was one of the of that uh, generation of people for whom. It was much more viable to move to Sydney, at least for like in the 80s, and he ended up in Melbourne. Now he's, he's living in the bush or something now, but he was totally living that mid-80s Sydney bohemian thing, which is just gone. It's amazingly gone. I almost feel nostalgic for that world, even though I was never there. Uh, BG's biography, it's great. Um, here, they were from England, or oh, they're from Isle of Wight. Went, then they were, were in Queensland, so we've got Queensland coming up again. Then they had their first number one single in Australia before going back to the UK, which was uh, Spicks and Specs. And finally, Crazy in Love, the Beyonce Knowles biography. Yeah. She didn't uh, write that. She though. didn't write it, which was, makes it harder. I felt sorry for the person writing the book because they can only work with, uh, you know, press material and stuff like that. So it's not like they were getting really in-depth interviews or, or insights from the life of Beyonce. You could see that they'd just been combing through all these magazines and recordings and stuff, but I still learnt a lot from that. I didn't know uh, before that that Kelly Rollins actually lived with Beyonce and her family. So, yeah, they were full on just a family unit. And the dad managed the band and push, push, push. They went on a few talent shows, but they just played at like shopping centres and stuff around Houston. Um, and they. This is shocking. Nobody, correct me if I'm wrong, when they write their biography or otherwise reflect upon their music career says, and the real highlight was when I played at a shopping centre. <laughs> That's how we get our start. If you can do that, I think you can do anything, frankly. You. Anyway, so that's where, and I can also recommend from my PhD, uh, David Nichols' The Go-Betweens from Queensland. How many times do we have to hear that? Um, And also Pig City from the Saints to Savage Garden, about bands from Queensland. Why is it called Pig City? There's lots of police there. Yeah. 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 And um, have you read that one, Sam? I've read Pig City is is one of the few books mentioned that I have read Cup to and also being from Brisbane, I'm pretty intimate with that, mm-hmm. that, that kind of history. Yeah. So what I got from that is that like, to be in Queensland in the 70s and 80s was a terrible thing, but ultimately is fantastic for a music scene yeah. because they had to draw on their social capital. They could only play in a few places. Yeah. They had all the conditions that makes the musicians not hate each other, but actually have a to work enemy. together. Yeah, that's right. So it's a really shit place to live, but great for music. Yeah. I think like any rock history though, it's been romanticized, but that's kind of what rock roll is all about. Is remembering it better than it was well, actually the time. was, yeah. 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 Um, the, I, see, I haven't actually read any rock biography cover to cover, because I often get bored with the, like, the self-aggrandizingness mm-hmm. of them, um, because musicians really aren't that interesting, <laughs> I think. <laughs> um, but I've got I've got Bruce Springsteen's um, recent autobiography, Born to Run, sitting on my coffee table, and I've read the first few chapters of that, 
and it's funny because he like writes about his life as if he's writing a song about his life. Oh, that's and weird. It's, like, it's so good. Like every line is so loaded with like <laughs> this kind of like work the screen door slammed. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and it's great, but uh, I don't. I don't think I'll ever read the whole thing because mm-hmm. it's just like something about musicians makes me cringe because. They just love themselves so very much. Because they've had, or they if, hate themselves. If they've, really. Yeah, it's usually a bit of both, right? Yeah. yeah. And if they've had some successes, then they're going to be grappling with all that. Yeah, yeah. And you throw in the worst thing. One of the ones that I struggle with with uh, musician autobiographies is, and then I got drunk, and then I did drugs. Like uh, a notable mention on that front is Scar Tissue by Anthony Kiedis, <laughs> and the guy uh, who's the guy, the bass player from Motley Crue, who's really the leader of the band. But you, you know, yeah, yeah, he had another one, some title like that. Oh, he and did it, the dirt. They, yeah. well, they did the dirt as a band. Yeah. So, oh, okay. But he also has had one um, of his own. The yeah. heroin diary. Yeah, that's what. And which is, which is a, that, an album yeah. of his as well. Oh wow. Yeah, yeah. So you can guess what that's about. But at a certain point, you're like, you know, I, I don't know if anyone ever gets got the. Has anyone ever said I really love reading about your drug problem? No one got the memo, did they? Yeah, yeah. That's the thing. I think yeah. what happens is that's when they go to therapy and they talk about the <laughs> experiences on yeah. drugs. So that's what they share. And I've noticed this not just rock biographies, but also any celebrities. For example, yeah. I've almost read the entirety of David Hasselhoff's oh, man. autobiography, which had some title like. You know, surfs up or something like that. <laughs> but they seriously, they go through this whole setup part, and then they'll say, and then I got famous. Oh, and I was doing so many drugs, and it was all just a big it's a blur. blur, party after party. I was a wreck. Then I met my therapist, and then it goes on and on yeah. for like yeah. every all the issues about yeah. my dad that they worked through, yeah. and it is genuinely boring. But I yeah. did read it because yeah. there's always a snippet in there. The only biography I've read cover to cover. George Orwell's. I've not read that. <laughs> oh, read well, I read um, Down and Out in Paris and London, and so read, that's yeah, kind yeah. of like, yeah. Well, yeah. Catalonia as well. Yeah, I've read oh, yeah, I read that. Those and books. Red yeah. Wig and Pierre. Yeah, I haven't yeah. read that. Is that is that like the third that's one? That's fabulous. That's it's part about three. his relationship to socialism. Ooh, yeah. yeah. I haven't got one? to that one. Red Wig and Pierre. Uh, when I started reading it, I thought it was about physically about how you get to this coal mining town of Wigan. Mm-hmm. But he largely talks about how he became a socialist and all the things he struggled with about that, like his journey Hmm. intellectually and physically towards reconciling himself to being a socialist despite all the issues he has with Because I was quite moved by, like, the first... Well, I was moved by the Catalonia one, but especially moved by Down and Out. Is that a flat-out autobiography? I've never read that. No, it's not an autobiography, it's a biography. Oh, biography. It's definitely not written by him, but he's got so many memoirs. There's a thing that, like... He had a far more interesting, interesting life than any musician ever could. That's true. <laughs> so like, it's like I read, I read that in high school. I was like, "Fuck, this guy had the most amazing life." And then you go and read some bullshit about the partying in the eighties mm-hmm. from like a Motley Crue by Yeah, yeah. It's like, this and is terrible. Why are these people leaving rich or famous? There's often really, really good like. Um, wider economical and geographical reasons for those periods where musicians can be like that as well yeah. if we think about you know a lot of the iconography of let's well, party 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 of 80s or 70s and 80s musicians that's the era where recorded music is quite profitable profitable and um these they may have been on weird contracts but they would have had these like a large amount of cash at their disposal even if they have to pay it back later and then 
you have the imagery and the lifestyle of touring and when we think about like it would be yeah. hard to be that interesting as a musician the day-to-day life which um, from which i now recommend the mark seymour book um have i got that in here no i haven't got them what was that 13 called? ton theory so the guy from hunters and collectors and you know i maybe thought he would be not that interesting but he's just really frank about what it involves to be a musician and do that sort of stuff you can't really do anything that interesting most of the time you are touring and then you got to record and you got to sit around tour record sit around and it's a lot of physically in, difficult to be interesting yeah. yeah a lot of time sitting in hotel rooms yes that's like right pondering. yeah how, yeah how interesting can a person be in a hotel room? that's yeah, right yeah. And you get a lot of like the perspective of life from a hotel room you know and all those touring songs i'm in some sort of hotel room blah 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 yeah. i don't even know what city it is blah 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 like that's the sort of perspective on the world that you can only have in a certain time in music history like that you can and I, yeah. I, it wasn't a book but i watched the documentary on sbs in demand on demand sorry um about spando ballet yeah <laughs> it's called uh, soul boys of the western world and honest to god like i liked the song but you got through the thing and wondered like whether your fondness for the music could survive this documentary it was fabulous <laughs> In evoking, like there was all this interesting stuff about their relationship to Thatcherism, and yeah. they had a, a lot of their connections were actually with the fashion industry and club scenes. So that yeah. was all very interesting. But as far as the actual people in the band, you pretty much got the end of like these people are just irreconcilably spoiled. For example, that song "I Know This Much Is True," which of course I have everyone knows. They song. talked about the but now we have to get two two members of that two members of Spando Ballet have written autobiographies. One was called true and the other one's called i know this much (laughs) 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 neither of which i've read but um they describe writing that song and it's a situation where no one can really relate to this but i still like the song they were financed to go stay in the bahamas by their record label and they show them hanging around phil collins thing he's like drunk in the caribbean all the time they're hanging around the pool (laughs) doing drugs in like white g-strings and they're like oh i come up with a great tune Oh yeah, okay. relentlessly. Okay. You don't want to know anything about them. No, I do. I do. I like because it's funny to me. The whole, the whole thing is very amusing. I've been on a big Pearl Jam um, oh, yeah. bender this week. Yep. Um, Eddie Vedder wasn't originally like the core part of the band, right? He answered like an ad and then moved up to be part of the band. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. He and like he's an interesting character because he's like you know. Ask yourself who is more influential, Nirvana or Pearl Jam? Well, you know, Nirvana are so hallowed, but what did every band try and sound like in the Pearl 90s? Jam. And Pearl Jam. Like Jam. They yeah, look yeah. like them too, that's right. Like everyone tried to sing like Eddie after that. Yeah. So, uh, I, and I just, they're, they're also interesting because um, Eddie, I don't know about Eddie, well, I assume that he writes most of the lyrics. But yes, that's my understanding. Yeah. A lot of them are written from the perspective of women. Yeah, like and a like, woman behind the counter in a small town. Yeah, yeah or wow. like daughter or Oh, that kind of a better man. Yeah, I've never like, thought of that. Lots of his, lots of the songs, and women that are in like uh, unfortunate positions yeah. that, where they've been kind of like pushed into a life that they weren't that happy with. Um, that's totally a thing, isn't it? And I was just watching yeah. the... Um, 
MTV Unplugged and like in the middle of porch when they're doing a big jam out thing he like writes pro-choice on his arm and like shows it to the camera that's pretty cool which for like early 90s mainstream Australia uh, sorry America America, yeah um, was huge that was still that was pre-Clinton so it was still so yeah I I don't know I'm interested in musicians as public figures but their yeah. private lives I mm. often find pretty fucking yeah and then <laughs> touching on that like he's sing- singing through the perspective of women you know a issue with a lot of musician biographies is that they're biographies of guys who have They're never like had to change their behavior yeah, that's yeah. right They're so like, like terrible people <laughs> it can i maybe i'm like becoming inoculated to it by just reading so much of it They're like you just go oh here he goes again talking about that blah 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 and the yeah. best you can hope for they go i look back on myself at that time and i'm not proud of what i did yeah. but yeah. I've, with the help of my latest wife i feel like i've moved past they totally do that <laughs> like have you read any like paragraph the Dirt by Motley Crue. I haven't. No, it is I don't the think most I can work disgusting prose oh, no. you ever laid yeah. on. I read like half a page and it was like, oh, these groupies came backstage before the show and they were like, oh, we want to fuck the whole band. And <laughs> sorry, this is probably a bit <laughs> blue, blue for the podcast. I'll put a little like. This is reminding me of what I read the uh, Guns N' Roses book. Um, yeah. uh, but and Motley Crue was like, you can fuck the whole band, but you have to sit on this vodka bottle for the whole show. Like and wait for us to come backstage afterwards. Oh my god! Oh my that's god. how you earned your like sad, like unreconstructed sadism. And yeah. it's like her, her, her. It's <laughs> terrible. Her, her. It's really, really bad. And like this is that's the kind of stuff that puts me off mm-hmm. yeah. music biographies in general because I just find musicians to be terrible people. <laughs> I think a lot of people are really terrible, um, and that in it's a very unusual profession where you can just do that and be not only not punished for it but actually actively rewarded for it yeah that's it compare i mean there's a lot of similarities between musicians and sports stars but that one of the differences i notice is that in the music world there's no expectation really at all that you should show any to be a role model or or role model behavior (laughs) in your private life in with sports stars they're put on a huge pedestal but there's sort of a little bit of outrage if they did cocaine and you mm-hmm. know yeah there's that's, there's no outrage yeah it's like no, this yeah. is part of part of what you're uh, applauded for yeah. is, is your behavior restrain that kind of behavior successful because of it. Yeah. And yeah yeah and the general point like it's i mean i personally enjoy reading oral histories and just general histories like any any kind of book where it talks about how someone grew up or whatever i usually find it passably interesting so i think my threshold's really low but i agree with you sam that musicians are not necessarily any more interesting than most people in fact often slightly less so a little bit like sports stars where their single-minded focus on achieving a fairly narrow goal actually makes them less yeah, they don't do people. other stuff. They're yeah, pretty yeah. rare to do other stuff, actually. Yeah, and yeah. it's the few that do that are interesting. Like, mm-hmm. I will hopefully keep reading Bruce Springsteen, but like, he's done other stuff. Like, yes, that's he's right. He's like quite invested in the political landscape of America. Mm-hmm. Um, I know, so he's kind of supported various like presidential campaigns. Um, yeah, I just I'm like I'm more interested in like musicians who get actively involved in like the public sphere than just like write songs and party and mm-hmm. do that sort it's of thing. pretty hard to sustain that too, yeah. right? Yeah. And then you think about that, that is pretty weird. If you could still do that for a living when you're older, 
you're going to be a pretty strange person. Yeah. How would you relate to others? I mean, you usually hear about it. I often also, when I read these books or watch these films, I just think how painful it must be for, like, their family or just sort of casual acquaintances. Like, Mm -hmm. even if, say, your brother was the guy from Motley Crue, like, you... Mm. Everything presumably. This is Sansa. His brothers are Motley Crue, uh-huh. and you might not even like their music, but you're always defining. May I them. also say that this topic is explored in detail in Thirteen Ton Theory because we know so Mark Seymour's brothers was in Trouted House, mm-hmm. so um, he always felt like a failure compared to him. It's a great yeah. book, yeah. And then thinking about like so, basically have paid up, like you know, dickheads of, of various descriptions. Let's put it in perspective. That's what a lot of this is the driving force behind these huge music scenes. So many people want that. Yeah, I right. want to be that person. I and want I to want to never... watch someone else do it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's like, wouldn't that be cool? That I could just like write songs and then I could do cocaine in the Bahamas and yeah. then that'll be awesome. And I'm gonna move across the country to do that. I'm gonna come to these, you know, different venues and I'm gonna make that happen and it's gonna be awesome. Yeah. Um, so there's a drive there to do that. The paper I did for the Urban History Conference was about uh, contrasting in excess with the ears. So in excess was just very successful, um, uh, almost bizarrely like successful, and they they kind of followed a pub rock route at single-mindedly. Of course, they had a Svengali figure. You got to have all that. And the ears were another band that they've had a lot of sort of common history, I guess, and. Most famously, um, Michael Hutchins played the lead singer from this band, relatively obscure band from uh, late 70s, early 80s in Melbourne. But at the time, it was like, this is a really unsuccessful band. Who would want to be in a band like The Ears? But now I think like the fact that this is just a band that did gigs and they like had friends and they got to live in a share house in Richmond. In Richmond. And like... That is like the dream. <laughs> it's yeah. like, wouldn't it be amazing? We could like live in a city it's and have like friends. How people aspire to being yeah. Van, you know, the what do you call that guy? The painter guy with the ear. Oh, Van Gogh. Van Gogh. Who's the guy that went out with the other guy and he got shot? Baudrillard? No. Uh, Who's the one that Patty Smith followed? I'm at sea now. Yeah. <laughs> Rambo. Rambo. Yeah, like they're, they're at the time possibly considered failures, but then they become a thing you aspire to later. I could move to Paris and live in a loft and starve. I'm going to round out by so much. So to people still listening, the level of activity on Ligon Street is pretty intense. We've had passers-by, which are fine. We've had many motorbikes gunning it. Mm-hmm. We've had ambulances, police, and the bus. And now the band's got some music. Here. Yeah, good. I wonder what kind of band it is. I've got a list here. I won't go through all 20, but I've got top 20 Aussie bands voted by Aussie musicians, according to... It already sounds bad. Some kind of Aussie. And can I also note, another time I talked to Sam, I thought it was really funny, he said that... Um, Below musicians were comedians, and we're gonna have a T-shirt that said like. <laughs> yeah, below comedians is bike couriers. Yeah. <laughs> That's how the, yeah. the bottom strata of society is. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, yeah. I'm a musician, so I, I have yeah. a fairly strong bias against other musicians. Mm-hmm. Self-loathing, you might call it. Yeah, which is part of the the, the, the world of the introspection. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
But and there's certainly part, and like comedians even more so, the part of the work involves a sort of corrosive effect of everyone around you is kind of your like competitor and stuff. Oh, that's gross. It has a really weird effect on people. So yeah, you guys funnier than... Hey! Honest to God, sometimes I want to do a podcast about why did you beat that fast, beat that hard or... Yeah, what was actually happening? What was going on there? Because this... Who, oh, Aggressive parking. It looks like something straight out of Seinfeld. Like one is reverse parking, the other one is kind of trying to. Oh, now they're going to park in the driveway. Since we've gone full swear on this episode, once I was walking along Ligon Street and I saw a man. um, I think someone might have brushed past his car or something like that. Yeah. And the man came up, walked like stalked across the road, Mm. and said, "And I'm not substituting any words here." He said. You fucking, fucking touch my car again, I'll fucking fuck you one. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, that's over now. So I'm going to read out the names of a few of these and I'll get each of you to comment on any kind of trivia you know about where these bands came from and what was key to their success. Mm -hmm. You know, the places they came from, the people they knew (laughs) and and how applicable it is. So the first band, Off The Rank, ACDC. Oh yeah, they're migrants. They're, they're all British migrants, and then they landed in Adelaide, and we're like, oh, we should probably get to Melbourne because Adelaide's shit outside. And um, yeah, the, Thank you. the young brothers, Angus and Malcolm, obviously the core members of the group. Um, but George, they, their older brother older was brothers. in the Easy Beats. Easy Beats, right out of so my like, mind. They were an earlier band, were they? Yes, that's Oh great. yeah, very influential. Mm-hmm. And um, also songwriters, Vander and Young. You know that song I sometimes hear on like on classic rock and I kind of like it? Hey, 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 St. Peter's. No, that, I don't know that song. Okay. <laughs> that was Vander and Young. But yeah, it's right, they're all migrants and they had a kind of leg up from their older brother. Yeah. Yeah. But, um... Yeah, a bit of like a musical dynasty that Australia likes to claim as their own, but they're actually not from here at all. Yes, and I remember meeting people in America where I mentioned, oh, you know, you might know an Australian band, what about ACDC? And hardcore ACDC fans were, fans were like, really? Like they're from Australia? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So are there any venues that were key to ACDC's success? They played at schools, they played on Countdown, I don't know if that counts as a, as a venue. Um, they were a little bit before pub rock proper. They were kind of a bit early for that. Um, yeah, they, they actually played at high schools and I wouldn't be surprised if they played some suburban venues, but I'm not sure. The yeah. Young Brothers, Migrants, but Bon Scott's actually from Fremantle. Oh, he is too, and there's yeah. a statue of there's him, a right? There's a movie about people going to his grave or something. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, I'll pick another one. Character. I'm not sure. We've yeah. already covered an excess of cold chisels, so mm-hmm. I'm going to mm-hmm. skip down to. And we had silver chair before as well. And you just mentioned the Easy Beats. How about UMI? Do you know anything about that? They're them? Melbourne through and through. Um, although Tim Rogers was born in Canberra, I think. But like, right. yeah, yeah, they they got all their breaks in Melbourne. Yeah. I think you might know more about it than I. About. Well, I know he still lives in St Kilda and still bangs on about it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that's I'm not a huge UMI fan, but I am like they definitely have Melbourne band. Yeah, so and, they like, got their start. Yeah. Very entrenched in like the Melbourne rock scene, especially yeah. in the early nineties. Yeah, 
and they were on like the hottest 100s and stuff like that so they would have done quite well out of the triple j so for listeners who don't know triple j only nationalized in well it was gradual but basically around 1990 um before that it was just a sydney station that was always always uh from the mid 70s earmarked as going national but it actually went national in the 90s and anyone who was in regional Australia in the 1990s would remember the arrival of Triple J. I mean anyone who was a teenager at that time um, and that would certainly help some bands to uh, be quite well known without literally having to move to Melbourne or whatever like ACDC did. Um, but then perversely it would have the effect of you, you'd hear all these bands who are like like um, Frente and stuff like that like Melbourne bands and hear these venues being mentioned and that in I remember in some of the interviews people would say we kept hearing about this place called the Punners Club so we just had to come to Melbourne to come there so weirdly it was like national broadcasting helps to encourage migration to a particular place so we had Silverchair Newcastle band made pick me competition and there's a few articles about them in the 90s where like uh, they kind of bagged out for not having you know earned their chops enough yep Powderfinger Brisbane. Brisbane band. Still based in Brisbane, my hometown. They're bloody royalty there. Like they had an album named after the like the main street through this the inner south Vulture Street, which was like mm-hmm. huge. Oh, I just thought that was a dumb name. No, so no, did no. I. <laughs> no, no, no. And like my mate from high school was in the video clip for these days. Like chasing what was it? the little springy thing. Yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. Chasing the slinky. Yeah. My mate Rory. Wow. Um, yeah, like they and they still live like in Brisbane. Yep. They yeah, didn't have they to. They still move. play Splinter in the Grass every now and again. But yeah. Here's but, a ver- another very Melbourne band, Paul Kelly. Paul Kelly and the Coloured Girls, wow. the Dots and Messengers. Great migration story, Paul Kelly. Adelaide to Melbourne, right? Yeah. Um, and played at key venues, or he's just sort of he's very rich. But I can go on about. I'll, I'll let Sam. He's say constantly written about Melbourne. Like, yes. You know, the, the um, clock on the silo to, to King's, King's Cross. Cross. The reason I was like, I better defer to Sam because I kind of thought about this a little bit too much. My blog was called From St. Yeah. Kilda to King's Cross. But he also wrote like a fantastic song about Adelaide. So yeah. he's originally from Adelaide. All the King's horses and all the King's men couldn't drag me back to Adelaide. He was in. <laughs> it's a, really? It's a fantastic I don't song. Know that yeah, song. I, I recommend Adelaide. Um, moved to Melbourne from Adelaide but his first gig was actually in Tasmania in the, at Sal, you know those markets his Sal, first gig yeah 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 I actually place. don't know why he was there I just remember that was in the biography uh, how to make gravy um, and he was in Melbourne in the early 80s playing around a lot but like never quite making it making it I guess um, by all accounts had a raging drug habit so you know um, as, they that was, as they all did yes plenty of people did at that time um, and went to Sydney quite abruptly in the mid 80s and he'd been in a bit of a funk hadn't written a song for a while um, and being in Sydney in the mid 80s was a uh, like a creative renaissance for him and it worked out really well and he had those songs around then that became quite popular and I particularly like the post album that was in done in Sydney yeah yeah and it's got a lot of the iconography of Sydney again that period of Sydney which is long gone sort of grungy bohem Sydney um, um, but he was only he had a great creative run there but then of course he just moved back to Melbourne after that yeah. <laughs> cool. yeah now we're getting uh, last I feel like I could just give you a choice of which ones you want to talk about quickly we've got the church the preset savage garden dragon skyhooks and living in 
Yeah, there. Savage Garden's another Queenslander band. Yeah, so isn't Logan. the church, or is that just, I'm thinking of someone else. The church okay. are very Sydney. Uh, okay. Also migrants though, uh, mainly uh, British migrants. Yeah, I don't know so much about the church. All I remember is that, that Under the Milky Way was written when they were stone. And then it was like they thought they were yeah. finished. Yeah, yeah, they thought that was the end of their career and then they had that last song. Savage yeah. Garden's a Brisbane band. Yes, but we, can we also just say that Savage Garden had the same manager as um, Silverchair. So mm. just to reiterate the importance of having a Spengali figure, if you really want to magically just like, you know, get thrown up the pop charts, you need someone pushing and it's probably better if it's not you. Because yeah. um, you run out of energy. Humans yeah. have only got so much energy. So I can't remember his name, Williams. Don't, I don't um, he, he had a lot of success with Silverchair and he also had a lot of success with Savage Garden and they did, they were part of the very early waves of being able to do home recording. Yeah. Their first album was done all at home. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Any thoughts on Dragon? Sky, I know New they're Zealand. from New Zealand. Yeah. And they have a film clip where they're driving down. Yeah. Uh, I got thoughts on uh, Dragon. You got thoughts on Dragon. There's a great film clip where they're on a tram going down Brunswick Street. So I just said, I yeah. didn't say the tram part. Yeah, he's on the tram. Um, they're from, you know, from Kiwi land. Um, and they moved over here presumably because you come here to be successful. I don't, I actually don't know. Like, I guess that's why they came here. Um, without going straight to the UK, I guess it's a natural step. You go first, you come here. Um, again, raging drug habits. Um, yeah. I think they were embroiled in some kind of uh, drug import scandal at some point. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, great songs though. Really good. Um, um, what was the last band? Skyhooks. Uh, Skyhooks and Living oh, they're, In. They're part of, well, Skyhooks were the Carlton sound for a while. Yes, they, they were. were. Like the inner northern Melbourne, yep. like art school. Yes, like yes. Bohemian, Far more like, middle class than, say, you know, some of the, we got um, ACDC or whatever, yeah. they are really, I guess the precursors to what we call hipsters now, yeah. they were, um, <laughs> you know, they were doing an arty thing. They're still I wonder how Red Simons of... feels about that label. Oh god, I feel like me. for a lot of, I've seen... He still lives in Clifton Hill, he's he always does. hanging out near the He gardens. is local and for, so, you know, another feature of um, Skyhooks is that they actually named checked um, locations in Melbourne and that was unheard of, they had that amazing song, um, was it Burwood Calling? Bowen. They're the same. Burwood Bowen. Get off the phone, son, and get out of Bowen. Like, they're actually name checking places in Victoria, which was unheard of. Um, so we had the Bee Gees. They had success with songs like Massachusetts. They'd never even been there. Mm. That's not to say that they weren't imaginative enough to well do that. Them, they worked out fine. Them. There's this absolutely very legitimate reasons to not reference your local suburbs. But mm. Skyhooks notably had songs about when they had something about somewhere in uh, South Yarra, some Chapel Street, South Yarra Cowboy or something like that, but they're very noticeably name-checking places. Yeah. And do you want to, we don't have to talk about the last band on the list, which was The Living End. You can perhaps put them. forward um, any comments on what venues or trends you think are happening in terms of people, you know, the music scene in Melbourne now, or Australia, I suppose. Is anyone like moving to Tasmania to make it now? Or? Fuck no. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, nah. <laughs> people, people move. Artists move to Tasmania to make it. Oh, Mona. Yes, because yeah. of Mona. Yeah, it's yeah. an artist thing. And can I have? Um, I guess he counts as a musician. Oh, sorry, my listener. The guy f- um, who did. I'm so so smart and that it did it did it. Who's that guy? You Justin Hazel, Hazelwood. Um, oh, the um, um, the um, the bedroom philosopher. He had the book. Yeah, he's um, from Tassie. Um, and his book, um, Fun Employed, I actually really enjoyed that. It was talking about 
Um, one of the best images of that is he's saying, you know, I was in my underpants sending emails, meaning, like, just just saying the vast majority of doing this thing yeah. is kind of boring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah You're just yeah. like organizing things and contacting people and setting stuff up and and you don't earn a lot of money from it and he was quite honest about that i quite enjoyed that yeah. fun employee i can't a good book. remember his name probably and yeah, part of the name comes from the fact that he still has to front up the sense link yes explain his earnings or lack thereof <laughs> yeah fine final examples or comments sam uh everyone's still moving to melbourne mm-hmm. everyone seems to love melbourne i mean it's great we're very spoiled um, I moved to Melbourne from Brisbane six years ago and I haven't looked back. So you wouldn't go back to Brisbane? No. no. Not, not, not if, maybe if I was offered a great academic position mm-hmm. um, at all, and or to start a family. Mm. But uh, As far as life and life, the city itself is yeah. not a pool. Yeah. Yeah. No. yeah. What about that whole thing where they have the Fortitude Valley, like, you know, up, like zone of entertainment. I honestly you. think that has been a, a planning disaster. Mm-hmm. I've read that. Oh my god! <laughs> um, he thinks so too. Yeah. <laughs> um, In what I, ways? I mean, I read Matt, was it Matt Burke's paper on, yeah. on the sort of creating an oligarchy. It has a perverse of, side effect. Oh, I haven't read that. Oh, it's worth checking that out. That sounds like I would agree with it. Yeah, um, okay. It's, I think it's in like, because you, you're, from what I understand your research, you're talking uh, social capital, Bordeaux, all that kind of stuff. And this is published in a very narrowly planning journal. And I have read his work before. Planning um, for music or something. Yeah. yeah. Planning for them. Read, has he written one specifically on? No, I it's a comparison across multiple cities. So that's probably okay. why it got buried in yeah. there. Yeah. My takeaway lesson from it, I can't remember the title of it, was that in Brisbane they had tried to say well this is the zone where we do music and then the side effect of that was that well only venues that already existed could do music Mm. of which were owned by like three people and then it just pushed any new innovation any small venues out well they bought and also the the, it created an opportunity for the market to really t- explode in neoliberal terms. So anyone who had capital just bought up huge blocks of land mm-hmm. and like bought up all the venues around the venue they already owned, oh. and then like just controlled their little patch. And like there was diversity got flattened in terms of the nightlife. So yeah, Brisbane's weird. Um, I loved growing up there, but you know, it's not somewhere you can really have a sustainable career in the arts mm-hmm. um, unless you have the support of Triple J, yes, which is yep. the double-edged sword of Triple J. In, mm. in Brisbane, if you don't get played on Triple J, you can't be a musician. Oh, Whereas wow. in Melbourne, you definitely can have like you know a sort of quasi yeah. hobbyist yeah. career, like doing quite well because Triple R has a bigger list. Yeah. Metropolitan Melbourne, that's yeah, so yeah. that's fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in Brisbane, like Triple J, in terms of like anything that isn't top forty, owns the marketplace. Yeah, yeah. And like, so you're either in on that on this amazing wavelength, or you're not on there. Yeah. You just yeah, okay. nothing Triple in Z, between. Four Triple Z does an amazing job, the local mm-hmm. community radio station. Mm-hmm. But the only people who listen to Four Triple Z are people who are already involved with the station, mm-hmm. like getting played on the station yeah. or involved in like the community yeah. around that, which yeah. is an underground community, which yeah. is fantastic, and it's the community I grew up in. But it's not a professional kind of 
yep. arts. And that came through like with the all through the 90s and through the 2000s, like these vaguely mystified reports saying actually people are still listening to Triple R more than Triple J in Melbourne. <laughs> like, we don't understand, but they're kind of doing it. And that's been very important. Like, the Triple R and the PBS factor in Melbourne, it's very helpful, can kind of offset some of those other wider trends that um, not everyone can be on the top of the heap. And if you want to have an ecosystem, you pretty much have to have people who know each other and have some vague method of relaying that to someone else who knows them. Because you're going to go to things because you know someone who knows someone. And if you can't ha- tap into that, it's That's true. pretty hard. I don't know where in that comes the phenomenon. I don't know if it's really new. I'm really distracted because the guy on the next table looks so much like the guy from the room. You know, thank Oh, yeah. <laughs> Music, music breaks mm-hmm. the inner world of the musician as shared by their biography, but also as revealed by their pattern of success and connections and things like that. Um, and with some recommended reading, yeah, we recommend- I'll put a rec- I'll put a reading like for those that listen to BBC. Mm-hmm. There's a reading list to go with this. Podcast. Yeah, and you can have some of the songs as well. Yeah, and, and yeah, disclaimer: well. we're not saying that any of these people are particularly interesting, but. You put them all together, and they're more than the sum of their parts, and that is a music scene, and that yeah. is music in itself. Yeah. I suppose. Yep. Yep. So thank you to Sarah Taylor, who is at RMIT. Diamond Data We're Science at is at RMIT. RMIT. Yep. Doing different. And Sam Whiting is a PhD candidate at RMIT in the School of Media. Media and Comms. Excellent. Um, I uh, lecture into music industry program and teach popular culture and kind of cultural studies 101. Mm-hmm. I can't believe they did. They actually call it 101. No, I was like so they excited. It, they call it popular culture and everyday life. Okay, that's the same thing. Still <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. And thank you. You have been listening to this. Must be the place at the Curtain Hotel in Carlton, which, by the way, still does music. And it does. I can hear, hear music upstairs. Yeah. <laughs>